The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You know, if you talk to counterintelligence folks today, you know, there is a sense that they feel sometimes that folks in the Valley don't understand the national security implications of the work that they do because they're just existing in a, in a place where they want to sell. You know, they want to get bought out or sell. And they don't, you know, there, there's, a, there's a certain cosmopolitanism here, which can be really, really good and beneficial and open and wonderful and a, a symbol of like what's best about America. But there's also this side where, you know, there's a sense in which it's untethered from the kind of exigent national security concerns of the day and interstate competition. And so Harper, I think, provides a great example of like a worst case scenario for how that culture can go really, really sour. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 23rd, 2023. In May 1984, former U.S. Marine, engineer, and early Silicon Valley entrepreneur James Harper was sentenced to life in prison for his central role in an audacious scheme to sell a bevy of classified documents relating to U.S. missile defense to the Soviet bloc and its allies. Four decades later, his story was almost forgotten, until it was rediscovered and investigated by national security reporter Zach Dorfman with help from some of the men who helped catch Harper and the spy himself. Now, with help from our friends at Goat Rodeo, Dorfman has turned this story into a phenomenal six-part podcast series entitled Spy Valley, which takes a close look at Harper's seminal spy case. Earlier this week, I sat down with Dorfman to talk over Harper's story and what it can tell us about the relationship between America's national security and those working at the bleeding edge of technological development. And after our conversation, be sure to stay tuned for a preview from Spy Valley, which is available now on your favorite podcatcher. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 23rd. Zach Dorfman on Spy Valley, an engineer's nuclear betrayal. So, Zach, you have put together a really pretty amazing story here. It's a story that big elements of, at least the broad strokes of, were known to the public, have been known to the public. I think people who are really deeply immersed in spy literature and spy history may be familiar with this case or nuclear history for that matter, but has really kind of fallen out of the public memory. I think memory hold, as you described it, uh, in discussing this project in, in in a related audio recording. Tell us how you found this story, this individual, James Harper, that is the center of this narrative, and what made you drawn to it as such a compelling story to warrant this treatment that you've given over these six episodes? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on Lawfare, Scott. You know, as far as the genesis of this story, I was having a conversation with an FBI contact of mine named Bill Kinane. Um, and, and Bill, um, who, who passed recently, but is a, a big part of the podcast, was uh, a longtime FBI counterintelligence agent in San Francisco. He spent the vast majority of his career there. And he worked um, Russian counterintelligence, but then also what was known as East Bloc counterintelligence, which was um, all of um, uh, the Soviet Union's allies from from the Warsaw Pact from Eastern Europe. And I was having coffee outside one day with Bill at a cafe north of San Francisco in Marin County. And Bill kind of offhand said, you know, somebody really needs to do something on the Harper story. You know, that's like, that was such a big story, you know, and I don't think Bill was just trying to push something that he had worked on. I mean, Bill was the, the FBI squad leader. You know, he was the, the, the head leader of the squad that was devoted to the East Block at the time. And um, 
So he knew a, a great deal about it. But Bill also really understood what a great story was. He was a natural born storyteller. And he knew that this case was an important one. And that, like you said, had been kind of like memory hold. And um, then I thought about it. You know, I, I asked Bill about his recollections. And, you know, although a lot of it was public, this the story, you know, was coast to coast headlines. There was a lot of really great granular detail and, and stuff that had never made it into the public sphere. And so I spoke to Bill about it. And then, you know, I talked to an, an editor of mine at the time and, and uh, Sharon Weinberger, now the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, I, I, I asked Sharon, well, you know, I think I found this spy. I think I found this guy, James Harper, this guy who had been a spy for the Eastern Bloc. Um, I think he's out of prison. I think he's alive. I think he's living in Arkansas. How do you recommend that I get in touch with him? And she said, you know, I really recommend you to go, you do the soft touch and that you write him a letter. Don't call him. You're going to scare him off. Don't doorstep him. You're going to scare him off. Write him a letter, you know, like a formal letter. Tell him who you are, why you wanted to hear about his story and see if he responds. And I thought this was like a one in a million chance that he would ever respond to me because, you know, most folks, you spend 30 plus years in federal prison, spying, you maybe want to leave that part of your life behind, you know, reporters are a nosy bunch, you know, a lot of people are not particularly pleased to interact with us. So I was very, very surprised and obviously thrilled when not too long after I wrote that letter, I got a voicemail from an unknown number and I could not believe it, but it was James Harper in Arkansas calling me back and he seemed amenable to talking. And then we started talking quite a bit. And so he told me his story from his perspective, which I think hopefully is an important and unique part of this, which is hearing about spying an American turncoat in that person's own words. So you mentioned from the outset that this is an important story, even though it has kind of fallen out of the public memory or had at least before this podcast, and that the people who worked on the case matter, this FBI contact of yours, other people throughout the podcast as well, see it as an important case. People who have exposure to a broad swath of sort of conduct in the space, nonetheless, this one stands out. Tell us what makes it important, why it is kind of an exceptional story in this universe, and what, what again, makes it stand out in the memory to warrant the exceptional effort you've put behind in contacting Harper and pulling together so much information behind it. Why does it stand out among other spy stories? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, one is the kind of persistence of the US-Russia nuclear competition and spy games. And that's something that it was memory hold for a while because there was this post-Cold War moment where there was this sense, at least in the public sphere, that this was no longer this was no longer a priority. I mean, even five years ago with the rise of China and national security and in the intelligence reporting space, China became the kind of primary focus. Um, China was kind of seen as the near peer competitor, all that stuff. But Russia never went away. I mean, Russia experts all were saying that till they were blue in the face, although I think they felt like they were kind of in the wilderness and people weren't listening to them. And then, of course, what happened was the Russian invasion um, or the full-scale invasion of Ukraine and the very real, very serious nuclear saber, uh, saber rattling by uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. And so, you know, the, the Harper story took place at a time in the late 70s and early 80s when the Cold War was was had reached its kind of second apex, you know, and you have, you know, you had real acute fears of nuclear confrontation. I don't think we're quite at that point again today, but I do think there is a sense that like there's this very sophisticated calibration that's going on about, well, what are these red lines? You know, what what can we do in our assistance to Ukraine? What can't we do? Might might Putin, if he feels backed into a corner, um, you know, assent to uh, uh, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon, which is like, I don't even like that phrase very much because you're talking about a nuclear weapon that's more powerful than the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that makes it sound like it's just like a, a slightly bigger bomb, which it's not you know, conventional warfare. So there's the nuclear dimension and just this sense that like these spy games never went away. And this is a great window into a period when you had similar, very significant nuclear-related tensions and a sense of the lengths uh, which 
both sides were willing to go to find each other's agents, recruit each other's agents, steal information about nuclear weapons programs. And I should just say that, you know, Harper was primarily dealing with the Poles, but they were all, the Poles were acting as a 100% proxy for the KGB, the Russian, the Soviet KGB. The money was coming from Moscow. The direction was coming from Moscow. When they, when the Poles got the documents, the the Russians flew in a team of KGB officers overnight. I mean, this was this was a huge deal for the KGB. So that's one part of it. The other thing that I think is really important is just the again the persistence of a certain culture in Silicon Valley. This is really this is a story about U.S. Russia relations about nuclear danger, but it's also a story about a kind of culture of avarice in the Valley that um, goes back many, many decades. And there's lots of examples of it more contemporaneously, but you can see in Harper, I mean, this guy literally invented the digital stopwatch, right? Like he was part, he was in, he was present at the the creation of the Valley. I mean, he was, you know, he, he was working in the Valley from the late fifties to the early sixties when the, you know, around the time that the first Silicon based microchip, trips were appearing with Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley. And you get this sense from him of this kind of this entrepreneur who almost made it big, but could never quite get there and almost viewed spying as just another play, just another move, you know, this, okay. So my digital stopwatch didn't, you know, uh, play didn't work. My magnetics company didn't work working for the, you know, this, this storied Silicon Valley firm Fairchild didn't work well. I have another opportunity. I have, a, I have a competitive advantage here. I can now just sell secrets to the Soviet bloc. And that's the way he looked at it. And I think, you know, if you talk to counterintelligence folks today, you know, there is a sense that they feel sometimes that folks in the Valley don't understand the national security implications of the work that they do because they're just existing in a, in a place where they want to sell you know, they want to get bought out or sell. They don't, you know, there's a, there's a certain cosmopolitanism here, which can be really, really good and beneficial and open and wonderful and a a symbol of like what's best about America. But there's also this side where, you know, there's a sense in which it's untethered from the kind of exigent national security concerns of the day and interstate competition. And so Harper, I think, provides a great example of like a worst case scenario for how that culture can go really, really sour. So those are the two main, the two main things I would say are, are particularly relevant for today. So I want to dig into each of those a little further. Before we get there, I think we have to talk about the guy at the middle of the story, James Harper, whose biography is the thread of the podcast and is the main line of the story, but if not necessarily the entire thing. Tell us a little bit about who this guy is. Where did he come from? And what led a man who had early success, as you noted, in being an inventor, an engineer with very uh, marketable job skills, I think by most uh, assessments in his uh, repertoire, down this path towards doing something as dramatic as selling some of the most essential secrets of national security and national defense to a foreign enemy? What is this trajectory and, and where does it start? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I'll give you the I'll give you the bare facts of the CV, but there's there's certain things that are almost a mystery to me to this day. I mean, other than pure greed, and it's hard for me to imagine being so greedy that you'd be willing to step over the lines that he stepped. But just as a, as a, a quick summary of of who he, who James Harper was and where he came from. So James Harper is actually a child of California. He grew up in the on the outskirts of the Bay Area. And he's one of three boys. He was the uh, the middle child, and his entire family were science and technology geniuses. I mean, they really were. I mean, he came from a family of people who just had a facility for engineering, and he went to high school in the Bay Area. He thought he was going to be drafted in the Korean War, and he ended up just missing it. But he volunteered for service, which. Uh, gave him his education in his formal education in engineering. So the U.S. military gave him the skill set that he that he uh, later you know used for the rest of his life. And also, by the way, the military trained him. His military training him allowed him to understand what was valuable and what wasn't in the documents that he was passing on to the to the the, the Soviet bloc. So there's another there's another one there. Another irony there. So he he graduated. Uh, he 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 did his military service, and then he worked on 
missiles um, in the burgeoning, you know, early 1950s Southern California um, military industrial complex, which, you know, was very important, kind of separate from the valley, but still important to this day. There's a lot of, you know, kind of missile development, you know, aerospace technology stuff going on down there. Comes back to the valley, has a incredible little um, adventure that we couldn't put in the podcast where he works on nuclear warning defense systems in Alaska. It was called called the White Alice Project. So he goes to Alaska and he helps the Air Force set up communication relay stations um, in case there's ballistic missiles uh, from Russia. And he he, he worked at a facility that was so close. It was called Tin City. It was so close to the Russian mainland that on a clear day, you actually could see Siberia from there. Like, you know, the famous Sarah Palin thing, like he actually could see Russia from Alaska. Like, yeah, he comes back to the Valley. He founds his own firm that kind of burns out. He ends up working for, for a company called Fairchild, which um, as I mentioned before, was this foundational Valley firm that produced, they, they call them fair children because there were so many of them that went on to found important companies, including companies like Intel. So we're talking about, and he's a little bit behind those those folks, but we're talking about somebody who really was a, he was there when people started making a great deal of money, right? Like fortunes are being made. There's a sense of this like boundless future and it's happening here. And he's a native son of this place at precisely the moment when, when it's exploding. And you're literally talking about a region that went from like fruit tree farms to high-tech business parks, right? Like while he is there. Then he founds his digital stopwatch company. Uh, he gets kicked out of the stopwatch company for embezzlement. The investors say that he he is is stealing money. This company still exists today, by the way. It's called AccuSplit. And he, I think, uh, I think on tape, I think it made it into the podcast, he kind of says, yeah, they still use my name. You know, like they took my AccuSplit name, you know, never mentioned to me that he was kicked out for embezzlement though. And he has a wife and he has, he has a family, he has four daughters, but you know, you know, Harper was, he was a cheater. He drank very heavily. He was a heavy gambler. Couldn't get into that in the series either. He used to uh, gamble. He used to, he told me, I don't know if this is true or not. He told me he used to play Yahtzee with Wilt Chamberlain, the, um, <laughs> you know, one of the, the greatest oh, basketball wow. players of all time when Chamberlain was, um, was, a, a, a played for the Warriors. And he eventually meets uh, a, a woman who was a girlfriend of his. Um, they have a, they have two separate flings that are separated by years, but this woman's name is um, Ruby Louise Schuler. And Schuler works for a, a defense contractor um, that works on ballistic missile defense related to intercontinental ballistic missiles and Minuteman missiles, um, which are part of America's nuclear triad. And he realizes, oh, wow, my girlfriend, this is not a thought that I think any of us would have, you know? Oh, my girlfriend and my partner works for a firm that does incredibly sensitive nuclear ballistic missile research. I should really sell that. <laughs> to America's enemies. That's, that's a good way for me to make some cash. And that was literally how he phrased it to me. I mean, well, I think he said, Oh, I, she's really sitting in the middle of a berry patch for me. Like I can, like, this is a great way for me to make some extra cash on the side or honestly not cash on the side. He thought he was going to get rich. He thought this was going to be his real, his true payday. I mean, he wanted a million dollars in 1979, which is, which is over $4 million today. So he wanted to make big money. One thing I should I should also add is that even before he did the nuclear espionage, he was involved in a kind of ring of folks who were selling export prohibited technology to the Eastern Bloc. There was a lot of economic libertarianism in the, the Valley then as there is today. And there were folks who thought that export prohibitions on high tech um, to American adversaries were stupid and anti-capitalist. And that they should be able to trade with whomever they wanted. And so Harper kind of helped in a small way in helping like electronic parts and computer pieces get to Poland and the Eastern Bloc. Um, so he kind of like stepped his toe in spine. I mean, like really like a little bit. And then by 79, so he he just dove in, you know, not even looking where he was going. So he's such an interesting figure. So from 
my kind of reading into espionage stuff, there's kind of a famous acronym people talk about about the motivation behind spies. It's mice, right? So it's money, ideology, compromise, which basically means you're being blackmailed or something. Doesn't they were just looking for a C word that I think worked because that one's not that great. Uh, and then ego, right? What are the motivations that drove him through this line of behavior? Because the money serially is a part of it, right? But there's also this kind of strange gamesmanship and a little bit that does seem to have a synergy with the entrepreneurial spirit, with some of the Silicon Valley ethos that to me strikes me as a little bit of that ego line, that it's not just getting money, but it's getting money by being better than other people, outwitting other people. Because we see him play these games against people, whether it's his handlers with the Polish intelligence service, whether it's his wife who he's cheating on, whether it's his girlfriends who he's kind of playing off each other in various ways. Does that ring a bell with you? And and I guess, how does that carry through with how he looks back at, at these sorts of developments, at the things that he did? No, I, I think it's 100% right. Well, let's start with what it isn't. It's not compromise. I mean, he was not compromised. I mean, he certainly wanted... He had financial troubles, but he was not compromised by the by spy spy service by by the the polls or the KGB or anybody. Ideology, no. I mean, in early Cold War, you did have like the Rosenbergs, and 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 particularly through the the fifth into the fifties, you had American spies who spied for Moscow because they were actual true believers who were communists um, or, uh, or fellow travelers who believed in trying to assist, you know, in, in building the kind of glorious, uh, glorious socialist future. You know, by the 80s, that was all out the window. The, the propaganda um, over, over communism being a true form of democracy, nobody believed it anymore. There was, you know, you had Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin Nobody was really spying for the Eastern Bloc anymore or, or the USSR because they loved communism, especially in its Soviet manifestation. You know, if, if James Harper had an ideology, it was the, the ideology of Gordon Gekko in Wall Street, you know, greed is good. And so in that way, he is paradigmatically American, um, or at least in a certain kind of curdled understanding or, or vision of American capitalism that exists in some corners of American society and culture. But I don't think he he didn't spy because he was like, I'm John Galt, you know, I need to, uh, you know, I, I'm like the Ubermensch who needs to go out there and, and show everybody what true capitalism is. I think he, first and foremost, was just a very greedy person. But I do think that it is impossible to separate his story from ego, you know, the last, the, you know, the E in, in mice, because my experience with him and every, his actions as relayed by others and the way he told me his own story makes it clear that he always thought that he was the smartest guy in the room and the rules didn't apply. And it's funny because you think about this as a, as a Silicon Valley arc, archetype, right? Where, you know, they used to have this thing that, that, that what was the old, the old uh, phrase of Facebook was like move fast and break stuff, fake it till you make it. You think about Elizabeth Holmes, you think about people who like literally were just like, we don't have this thing, but we will have it. And we can basically, we can defraud our investors until we actually have the thing that we say we have now. There's this, there's a culture here about, well, we just keep, you know, it's like you bend and bend and bend and bend and bend the rules until eventually you've just broken them out, right? And again, I think Harper is an extreme example of that. I don't think just because you're a fraud or, you know, just because you've, you've committed bank or wire fraud or defrauded your investors doesn't mean you're a spy. Far from it. But there is a certain lax view of, of aspects of criminality in the Valley um, in the service of your greater project that I think Harper represents well. His greater project was only himself at a certain point. He wasn't trying to raise money. It was like he was trying to spy to raise money for his startup, although that would have been a very interesting wrinkle, right? He already given up on that. He like, the digital stopwatch thing was in the rear view for him. You know, and he was already in his middle age and I think he just felt like this was his best play. But that's... That's my sense of what motivated Harper. Just and, and also in a way, you you got a sense to you got a sense with him where he almost viewed it as like a challenging game. Yeah. You know? Like like you said, like he was playing everyone off each other and he thought he could just outfox everybody else and it would just be like a great grand adventure, you know, to be a spy. And in a way, that's not entirely shocking because on the flip side of it, you know, some people become intelligence officers 
for the same reason, right? I mean, intelligence officers go to different countries and break laws there, right? In the service of their own country, but they are they are like working within a very in a legal gray space abroad, and you have to have that certain drive to do something that is dangerous and a little bit outside the norm. You know, there's the old saying about like the FBI catches bank robbers and the CIA robs banks. CIA doesn't rob banks. CIA people listening, I know you don't rob banks, but like it's it's it is just reflective of a certain mindset where like certain people just are more comfortable in kind of ethical or moral ambiguity. And Harper took that to something that was beyond ambiguity. But in his own mind, because I think he's he evinces certain kinds of like sociopathic behavioral traits. In yeah, his own mind, <laughs> it, it was yeah, yeah. In his own mind, it was it, it seemed like he just was working in an ambiguous I mean, I think he was afraid of getting caught. I think he didn't want to go to jail, but I never for a second got a sense that he believed what he did was wrong in any way, which I guess in hindsight is even more shocking. Yeah, it, it, it's just such a fascinating personality to see emerging in your one-on-one conversations that form such a bulk of the the actual audio content, hearing from him in his first voice, how he's describing a lot of these actions. And then the other part that's amazing that fits in here is the culture or context in which he's operating, which facilitates all this. Because as you noted, he comes in and he's actually initially connected to the possibility of selling secrets to the Soviet bloc uh, or to the Eastern bloc, I should say, because there's already another ring doing something sort of similar with another prominent entrepreneur slash former congressional candidate slash a million other things, Mr. Hugel, who plays a role in this earlier. And then, of course, he has his girlfriends, the main girlfriend, who Louise Schuler, who becomes his wife later, who serves as the contact to get the actual document that he's marketing. He has another girlfriend he uses a cutout to contact the polls. Uh, there are other women who are involved that he's involved with in different environments. He has another friend who helps him stash a bunch of these documents to whom he openly acknowledges these are classified documents. Can you help me hide them with your boat? And this guy appears to do it. It's so interesting that this guy was in this context where he could easily find people and had already found people willing to help him in these sorts of ventures. What is it that put him in that context? Do you have a sense of how it is he found himself in the company of so many people willing to go into an enterprise that to a lot of Americans, particularly at that moment, would have seemed pretty horrific, I think? It's just really amazing to me. That's a great question, man. I do not know. I could not find a single person uh, on my life who would be like, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, you want me exactly, to come to yeah. accessory after the fact to uh, to nuclear espionage? Cool. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. That sounds good. Oh, you need me to uh, introduce you to uh, to the um, Soviet bloc intelligence officer I know to uh, to sell those documents? Uh, not only am I going to do that, but I, I, I better get my cut, right? I better get my cut. Like, so that's like, that's Hugel. I don't know. I mean, the the short answer is I don't know. I think culturally he was already primed, like you said. I mean, just to step back on, so for listeners who haven't heard any uh, of the episodes yet, I mean, the the guy who introduced Harper to the intelligence officer that he then, you know, was his main point of contact, you know, in the the Eastern Bloc was a, 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 a semiconductor pioneer in the Bay Area named Bill Hugel. And Bill Hugel, man, I, you could do a whole nother podcast or book on Bill Hugel if you could, because he's just such a, I mean, Bill Hugel, like I said, semiconductor pioneer, uh, his first wife, um, Frances Sarnat Hugel was actually like a, a genius who died tragically in I think her early forties. Um, but Hugel, you know, speaking of archetypes, I mean, Hugel, he ran for Congress, as you said, as a Democrat in the, in the Democratic primary. He lost, but he was he was endorsed by uh, major figures in the Democratic Party in the early 1970s, like senators and governors. Um, and this is 1972. So he ran for Congress as a Democrat in 1972 on a pro-pot legal, libertarian, right? Pro-pot legalization, anti-war, pro-free trade with the Eastern Bloc. Right. He was like a pure, like a, like a real Silicon Valley archetype there. Right. 1972. This is the year he runs for Congress as a Democrat. It is also the same year in the Polish intelligence archives that identifies Hugel as an agent of the Polish intelligence services. So this guy was running for Congress uh, and came close. I mean, he would have won if he had won the primary. Right. He would have won that seat in, in the Valley. So you have an interesting side story there of a guy who was very mixed up 
in, you know, uh, basically being an agent of a foreign intelligence service while also running for Congress. And there are, I think, some good uh, echoes of today there and some concerns we have about foreign influence on our on our elections today. By 75, Hugel was like up to his neck in, he, he was the main guy. He was like, Harper was a bit player. Hugel was like, literally, you know, he was known as like the big man, right? Like he was, he was the guy who was leading the efforts throughout the Valley to get prohibited technology to the Eastern Bloc, to sell it to them. And Harper was just one of his minions, you know? And the FBI from 75, 1975 on at least, knew that this guy was dirty, but just couldn't nail him. They just couldn't nail him for whatever reason. Because he had all these connect. I mean, he was also connected too, right? That's what made it like complicated. Like he he had friends in high places. He was active in Democratic Party politics. He was a consultant. I don't think it's gone to the podcast, but he he was a consultant for the British government in the mid to late 70s. He served in the late 1970s, he served as a um Oh, he served as he served as a back channel in the Iranian hostages uh, crisis in '79 through his daughter because his his daughter was married to an Iranian man who was connected to the Iranian regime or knew people. So, like, he was like a mover and shaker. He was operating at a higher level. Harper was just a little bit more, a lot more rough around the edges. And so, like, how Harper met a guy like Bill Hugel and fell in with Bill, Bill Hugel and just happened to know a group of like people in the Valley who were more than willing to sell secrets to the Eastern Bloc. I mean, as far as I understand it, they literally all just drank at the same bars. They literally just would go like in the Valley at the time, there was like two bars where all the founders and and entrepreneurs and startup guys would go hang out and and get drunk. And at some point he met Bill Hugel at a bar and um, helped him out with some guys who were harassing his wife at the time, like kicked him out, like literally took him by the back of their, you know, back of their neck and threw him out of the bar. And after that, Bill Hugel was like, oh, you could be useful to me. And that's how Harper, James Harper, got involved with all these people who were already involved in this kind of like, definitely, is it spying? I don't know. It's definitely spying-ish. You know, you're, you're definitely engaging in activities that are very close to spying, you know, in terms of like shipping prohibited technology. But he was already, by the time he started selling those nuclear documents, he was already very comfortable in this space. And he knew a lot of people who, are, who also seemed pretty comfortable with it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, 
and that the one with the most information about me was called Hleck. I have no idea what Hleck is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So we know, and you've already drawn a lot of parallels between this case and today's efforts in Silicon Valley, right? The fact that we still have Silicon Valley playing this integral role in American national defense, because a big part of national defense is premised on cutting edge emerging technologies. Uh, that's no longer localized to Silicon Valley, but we still say Silicon Valley to mean the industries that that yeah. uh, you know, pertains to, right? What do you is your sense of the takeaways, the lessons for this sort of story to this more contemporary experience? You know, where are the parallels, the big parallels between what happened in this pretty exceptional case and the risks that are kind of on the current terrain? How have we seen the government or Silicon Valley itself kind of adapt to address some of these problems, or have we not seen that happen? And are there still these big cultural, institutional blind spots that kind of allowed this? story to develop the way it did in the 1970s, 1980s, are they still around today? Short answer is yes. Long answer is, you know, oh my God, we could spend hours talking about that. So so the Valley has the Valley has changed a lot since those days, but there is still an immense amount of classified work that goes on in the Valley and stuff that is explicitly related to national defense. But you also have new kinds of threats from from an intelligence perspective. I mean, not too long ago, there was a, a reported case of at least one undercover, um, I forget it was an agent or an actual intelligence officer, but it was there was a Saudi agent working at Twitter, right? And I think that's a really good, that's a really good example, because it shows that you're, you're not just like the value of spying in, in the Valley is no longer just about, you know, stuff that goes into an airplane or a ballistic missile system. It's also about like the, the companies that we, that I say we broadly, but really the entire world uses almost as like a predicate for modern existence. Like it's very hard to imagine modern life without social media or digital payments 
And because of that, there's inherent value to spy services to be able to understand those systems, compromise those systems, have technical or human penetrations of those companies. And that's all in the valley. Then you also have the persistent problem of startups and folks within those companies not necessarily even understanding the potential military or intelligence uses of the technology that they're developing. So that is very much part of the spy scene in the Valley. And then you have this idea that I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, and I would hear this from FBI counterintelligence folks um, while reporting this story and and some earlier reporting that I've I've done for political and foreign policy and elsewhere on, on spying in the Valley, which is that, you know, the goal, the goal of startups is to get bought. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they don't necessarily care who's buying it, but they want somebody to buy it. And and so that's all, you know, why steal technology if you could have a front company that, that just buys buys it <laughs> and then you own it, right? If you're China or Russia, you you don't need to steal it. You can literally just identify something in its nascent formative stages that you think this is going to be really important for the future of, you know, of of artificial intelligence or night vision technology or avionics. But the founders of that company, those three guys working in a garage or in a strip mall somewhere, like they don't seem to understand, you know, why this might be so valuable for for intelligence or military um, agencies. And then you snatch it up. Or sometimes it's just as simple as literally presenting to potential investors. Like that's all intelligence. Economic intelligence is a massive part of of what uh, countries collect in the Valley. And by the way, not just American adversaries. I mean, many American allies are engaged in the um, acquisition of economic intelligence in the Valley. So, you know, in, in a way, the scene is much more difficult for folks in the counterintelligence space because it's not merely just, you know, bombs and guns. It's now, it's now almost every facet of contemporary life from social media to military defense and like everything in between. And I don't envy the task that the folks have on the counterintelligence side of like figuring out how to protect secrets. But these aren't, but the problem is these aren't all secrets, right? Again, like the Harper stuff was clear cut. It was clear cut. This is classified documents. They relate to ballistic missiles, but like, but how do you tell a small startup working on something that, that they don't think has any relationship whatsoever to military intelligence. Well, this is sensitive technology. You know, you should really think about what, who you're going to sell this to. It has it's it's completely outside of the federal classification system, and so it's there's way more soft targets in the valley than probably anywhere else on earth, and so it's kind of like a movable feast for for foreign intelligence agencies, and I think it's going to be a problem. For, for many, many decades for national security officials, because there's going to be inherent tensions between that entrepreneurial ethos and that openness ethos of the Valley and the ethos of the national security world, which is the opposite. It's closed. It's about uh, restricting access, protecting um, America's unique capabilities from other, from other states. And those two things are going to be in tension with one another in perpetuity. So I don't want to jump ahead to the end of the story, but I think we have to to talk a little bit about the context, right? Because we know I we at this point that we're recording five of the six episodes are released. So I guess I don't know the full end of the story. I'm very much eagerly awaiting that last episode this week. Um, but we do know the end of the story, of course, for Mr. Harper, because as you mentioned at the top of the series, at the top of this episode, he was in jail for several decades. He was caught. And he was caught substantially as a result of his own actions, not just in committing crimes, but in attempting to approach the US government and seek some sort of deal that will get him out of the potential criminal liability of having done a lot of these things uh, in a kind of surreptitious way that that led investigators to him. It's interesting that, that is, this case is thought of by people who worked on it as a very seminal one. But at the same time, it seems like the counterintelligence breakthrough was actually a high degree of fortune. That's not unusual for counterintelligence stuff. Like you kind of just wait for spies to slip up or do something arrogant or get overly confident. And that's what starts you, gives you the hook that lets you then chase down the rest of the story, at least from my, you know, kind of secondhand uh, experience with, with similar stories. But it's pretty exceptional here, right? Like it got very, 
lucky in a way that they were able to get so much information directly from Harper himself through this interlocutory, this lawyer he's working with to try and negotiate some sort of deal for him that lets them piece together, oh, this is probably the guy and investigate it. And barring that, it seems harder to say for certain that he would have been held accountable, at least in the sort of time frame that he was kind of caught. Have we learned lessons about counterintelligence in these sorts of environments or the broader national security atmosphere? Have we seen the government adapt? Did your FBI contacts talk about the lessons of this case for them? And are there those lessons, things that have been institutionalized to make these sorts of cases harder today? Um, or are they really still a lot of vulnerabilities that this case brings to light that are still ever present in this sort of context? So there's a lot of important questions there. I think, so just to, to, Take it back a few steps. I mean, for folks who haven't heard the podcast yet. So Harper did decide at a certain point that he was going to try to become a double agent. Uh, when he realized that he was like in over his head, he, he, he anonymously tried to get the CIA to run him as a double agent. And of course, they, I mean, they very quietly like laughed him out of the room, you know, uh, metaphorically, but they wanted to keep him talking and to give more information to give himself up. That was one part of it. That's unusual. You're right about that. I mean, he implicated himself horribly in that way. Uh, but there was another aspect to this, which was that the U.S. intelligence community had a had a mole within the Polish intelligence services, right? So there's this saying that it takes a spy to catch a spy, and that that truth is kind of is, is crystallized here to an extent where the way that the FBI was able to catch Harper was to marry up the information that they had from the U.S.'s own, CIA's own source within Polish intelligence and what this anonymous spy, James Harper, was feeding them in an effort to get them to, to use him as a double agent. So those things, those things came together in a way. So they were both, you know, the U.S. intelligence was both lucky and good, which I think you have to be both, right? You, you, you have to be both because... It's not clear they would have ever gotten Harper without either of those pieces of information. And at some point, and this is still a little bit hazy to me, you know, it appears that by the mid 70s, the Bureau had recruited this Polish intelligence officer in Chicago. So somebody successfully recruited a Polish intelligence officer who then went back to Poland and was feeding them information on the Harper case, as well as other things, um, other very important cases. So that's part of it. I mean, I think that there's just, it is really hard to police an industry. In DC, people have clearances, right? So you have clearances, you can police information through the classification system. There are lots of people with clearances in the Valley, and there's lots of people working on military and defense projects, but there's also just lots of people who aren't. And folks in the Valley don't necessarily believe that what they do is of interest to Washington, let alone Moscow or Beijing or Tehran, right? But then there's like, there's that old uh, apocryphal saying that's often attributed to Trotsky, right? Like you may not be in, interested in war, but war is interested in you. Well, it's kind of like that with espionage in the Valley. Like, oh, you might think what you're doing has no interest to foreign states, but you don't get to decide that, right? And I, I think that that's just going to continually be an issue in the Valley. Um, I think that there was a there was a, there have been attempts over decades some successful some less so in forging better connections between us counterintelligence and the tech world and in some in some cases they've been very tight and there's been good cooperation on a variety of that's a whole another that's a conversation for a different hour but like post snowden things got really 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 tense because the culture of the valley being like pretty left-wing um, and pretty cosmopolitan, I think, resented hearing about, but employees basically revolted and resented the idea that they were, they were told they were working for a company where they could like play foosball. Um, but there was like some secret, you know, and they were like changing the world through better interconnectedness through like, you know, um, self-aggrandizing posts about um, all the fun places you've gone to and all the cool things you do. While in reality, like the company was also working on projects that were, or they were participating in U.S. government programs that were, you know, seen as like mass surveillance. Um, so there was a lot of pulling back after that. And I think that's always going to be a tension. There's also a lot of tensions around 
the valley again is very cosmopolitan. It's very there's a lot of immigrant, brilliant immigrants who come to the valley and work there, um, and some of those, many of many of whom come from countries that don't necessarily have very good relationships with the U.S. There's a lot of Chinese nationals in the valley. There's a lot of Russian nationals in the valley. There's a lot of Iranian nationals in the valley. There's a lot of Indian nationals in the valley, and you know, particularly vis-a-vis China. I think there is a sense that the Bureau engages in ethnic profiling. And so there's, you know, Bureau folks look at it differently, right? They have their own perspective. I'm, I'm given the perspective of the companies and the people in them. And I think that that is a consistent tension there, right? Because, you know, you have this discourse about watch out, you know, that like Chinese national might be a spy and like, those are your coworkers and friends, right? And so, Again, these are persistent tensions that are going to go on for a very, very long time. And I, I was, I spoke to security officials within some of these tech companies who talked about the difficulty in having conversations with their employees about this in a way that was sensitive to, like, the way that people viewed their work and each other, um, especially in this kind of cosmopolitan environment. So that's just another part of it. I think that's going to always be a point of tension between the bureau. And this kind of the the needs for higher awareness around intelligence issues and counterintelligence and security and the just basic culture of the Bay Area and the Valley and the kind of multicultural and cosmopolitan way that it's developed. So the weekend I ended up listening to this podcast, this was just this past weekend, uh, a really interesting profile came out that I think is very relevant to kind of the themes that we've discussed today and the themes of the podcast. That's this uh, in the New Yorker profile of Elon Musk talking about the role he's come to play in U.S. national security policy, particularly around Ukraine, but not exclusively limited to Ukraine, and some of the challenges of kind of managing him from the U.S. government's perspective, particularly based on interviews with certain senior U.S. government officials. And it's a fascinating profile to think about in the context of this story, because it the story is an allegory, an extreme one, as you describe it, for some of the challenges of engaging with Silicon Valley in this national security space, where technology and national security are so intertwined, and you're dealing with an industry and a part of the country and a community that's values are different in certain substantial ways, not uniformly, but you know, on average, embrace different perspectives than might be expected in Washington, D.C. or other places much closer to conventional government and policy. And Elon Musk is, I don't want to draw any sort of parallels between anything he's done and what Harper's done. That's not fair, I don't think. But he is certainly indicative of that mindset, I think, in a lot of people's minds, that kind of entrepreneurial instinct and value set, uh, as are many other people in Silicon Valley. What advice do you take away from this story? You know, what is the kind of closing data points and and recommendations that you would give to the poli- US government policymakers to say here's who you have to think about when you're engaging with this industry and with this sector and vice versa i suppose like what are the big awareness points as somebody who's thought about this in the context of one of the most problematic cases that still resonates today to say you got to think about this when you enter into these sorts of relationships and is there a way to really hedge and avoid the risk or is it just Part of what the, makes the relationship so inevitable and so appealing is the exact thing that creates these risks in the first place. So I think, you know, with the full disclosure that I haven't read the uh, Farrah profile yet in The New Yorker of, of Musk, and I'm looking forward to it. I, I have a, a, a pretty decent understanding of the um, issues surrounding Musk's Starlink satellite system, and, and it's, it's become critical in Ukraine, but it's privately owned, right? I mean, it's it's Elon Musk. So he can do whatever he wants with it. He can, he can degrade the capabilities of the Ukrainian forces to use them, you know, in certain areas if he deems fit. And I believe that there was some reporting in that piece that said, like, as soon as they crossed a certain line, all of a sudden there was a, a degradation in the quality of the of the um, the Starlink systems. I'm not a policymaker, and I and I I know this is a, a fraught terrain, the kind of regulation of of big tech, and both political parties have their bones to pick um, for different reasons, although there seems to be some alignment um, on um, policy recommendations. I think sometimes government thinks it's the shark and the valley is the lamprey, and then it turns around and realizes, like, we're the lamprey, (laughs) you know, and the valley is the shark. And, like, we are being led by something that we thought we were in control of and that was actually the, like, force to be reckoned with. And I think that, you know, 
There's been a discussion. It, it, it popped up a lot during the Trump years, although I think, you know, Biden, the, in the Biden years, they, they managed to pass that China competitiveness bill, which is one of the few truly bipartisan achievements of the Biden years. And that was really an industrial policy bill. Like this idea that we have to guide industry in certain key sectors because they have inherent value for national security. And I think what the Harper case shows and our and the Musk case shows and the kind of broader discourse around the Valley and big tech shows is that certain industries require regulation and guidance and a, and a kind of mutual understanding of their evolution and growth. It's like, it's almost like how you, how you force a bonsai, like you don't stop the bonsai from growing, but you let it grow and you, you have it grow in a certain way upward and not outward. And so the kind of like, guided growth um, of an industry and regulation go hand in hand, especially when there's so many critical ramifications for national security. But you have to do that while balancing U.S. values around free enterprise, free expression, like the stuff that kind of makes the engine of the valley go, you know, this idea that like you can be open you know, and you should be open. And this openness is what is what causes these incredible bursts of creativity that lead to these amazing breakthroughs that have made the valley what it is. How you solve for X there, how you how you manage growth and you regulate well without overregulating or somehow stymieing what makes the valley special. Um, and then also doing something that is closer to like a managed economy, which I don't think anybody wants, you know, for all kinds of ideological reasons. I don't know how you do that, but I do think that, you know, if I were like a counterintelligence professional and I wanted to have people like listen to this podcast, be like, this is like the worst case scenario. And there are people like this out there and we need to think through how to get people within those companies and in those environments, like aware of like, it has nothing to do with the color of your skin or your ethnic background. But like, if you... No, if you know a James Harper out there or somebody who just seems like the rules just truly do not apply to them and that they're willing to do anything in the service of themselves, that person might be a problem, you know, and those people exist in the Valley. They do. They definitely exist today. And as long as that culture exists here, you're going to have more James Harpers. And that would be the lesson I hope folks would impart from, from listening to this podcast. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there, but Zach, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you so much, Scott. Really appreciate it. As promised, here is a preview of Spy Valley from episode three entitled Get As Much As You Can. In this clip, we hear about a fateful meeting between Harper, his conduit to the Soviet bloc Hugel, and their contact in Polish intelligence, Sihogen, that almost brings about an end to their conspiracy. Meanwhile, Harper and Bill Hugel's relationship was starting to fray. Hugel clearly wanted to keep a close eye on Harper, and he wasn't about to be shut out of the deal with the Poles. Harper, soon after he returned to Silicon Valley from Europe, took to his diary again. Surprise, Hugel is back. He called about 9 a.m. and wanted to meet my place at 10.30. Bill was vague about why he returned. I think it was to keep an eye on my main deal. We discussed everything and agreed to meet his place next day for more detail. They all knew the next steps. The three of them, Harper, Hugel, and Sihogen, met again a few months later in Europe. This time in the notorious Cold War spy capital of Vienna, Austria. Harper landed in October 1979, and he met a favored companion upon his arrival. Well, I found out that Louise was going to Europe herself and was going to be there when her boss was there on a, uh, at, a, at a conference. Harper wanted to keep Schuler's role hidden because he didn't want anyone to know who his source was for the missile documents. So the plan was, while Harper ran interference, Schuler would lay low to preserve her anonymity. Harper checked himself into the Intercontinental Hotel, right in the center of the city. Hugel, laser-focused on his cut, also arrived at the hotel. Sihojin, too. Hugel met Harper in his hotel room, just the two of them. And Harper took out the documents he planned to offer the Poles. Hugel didn't say a word. 
He turned up the volume on the radio and took out a handkerchief. He held the documents with the handkerchief in order to not leave any fingerprints. Hugo looked them over and agreed that their sale could be very lucrative. The next day, Harper, Hugel, and Sihojin met at a nearby apartment. Hugel was worried about electronic listening devices in their hotel rooms. Over scotch and champagne, Harper produced a master document, a table of contents of sorts. He described the other materials he'd brought, as well as some documents he had already copied back in Silicon Valley. And I had not only the material that we had uh, suggested in the first meeting, but I had a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, I don't know, it was about, uh, oh, maybe three or four inches uh, of, maybe a couple of uh, reams of eight and a half by 11 paper that was abstracts from classified material that I was getting from Louise. And uh, I, I phonied it up. It looked good, I'll tell you. Harper was feeling very good about the meeting. Maybe too good. Because he made a brash move. He showed Sihojin a pair of Schuler sunglasses he had brought with him. And he told the Polish spy that a woman wearing those same sunglasses would soon stop by his hotel room to drop off the documents and collect the cash. Harper was having his source of the stolen files get dangerously close to the action. We had a real, yeah, we had a, a real interesting meeting there. And... Here's when things went a bit sideways. That's when Persugian stiffed me on the uh, original $15,000. That's the original $15,000 that Sihojin had agreed to pay for the documents delivered to him at that first meeting in Warsaw months ago. I was supposed to get paid at that time for something that I had given Persugian in that first meeting. And Harper was dead set on getting his share. And Louise went to that room. See, Hojin was supposed to drop the money into Louise's handbag. But he didn't do it. Schuler returned to Harper's room empty-handed. See, Hojin followed shortly after. And the men argued about money while Schuler hid in the bathroom. He came back to our room and said, hey, there's nothing but child's play. Uh, we're not going to give you anything for him. There's nothing but child's play. The Polish intelligence officer told Harper the documents were, quote, worthless as a cold cup of pee. Sihojin was saying, we know you're trying to scam us. Not only are we not going to pay you for the documents you've brought on this trip to Vienna, we're not going to pay you the previously promised $15,000 either. Sihojin left Harper in his hotel room. The Silicon Valley engineer was seething. Harper rushed to find Hugo, who was drinking at the hotel bar. Sihojin had headed down there, too. At the bar, Harper told Hugo the news. Sihojin wasn't going to pay them. And Hugo erupted at Sihojin, right in the middle of the crowded bar. He and Hugo actually had a, a real loud, uh, uncensored uh, argument about what was what was going on. I remember uh, Hugo saying something like, uh, "You owe me," you know, like that. And here, and here, this this place is this is a big hotel bar, the Intercontinental Hotel in Vienna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the, the spy center of the world. You know, you wouldn't have had to be a uh, a rocket scientist to figure out what was going on. Even for Harper, as bold as he was, this was too much. He watched Hugo and Sihojin scream at each other over a cash payout for stolen secrets in a crowded hotel bar. So he immediately decided to lamb it. I went up to the room and I told Louise, I said, get our shit ready, we're getting out of here right now. And uh, Louise and I went directly to the airport and we got the hell out of there. There are a few possible reasons why Harper's deal with Sihojin went sour. Either Harper didn't provide what he'd actually promised to the Polish spy, so his documents just weren't of any great intelligence value to the Soviet bloc. Or 
Sihojin was engaging in an epic bluff, trying to falsely devalue the documents to keep Harper coming back, offering more information on the cheap. But in truth, it was a little bit of both. Sihojin was trying to lowball Harper. Though some of the missile-related documents Harper offered weren't sensitive, many were utterly explosive. A goldmine for Moscow spies. Sihojin wanted all those classified documents without paying Harper the one-time million-dollar fee he'd demanded. Either way, after that blowout argument in the hotel bar in Vienna, things had spun out of control. The meeting also caused bad blood between Harper and Hugel, because, according to Harper, they had worked out a contingency plan. Hugel had promised to pay Harper back for the money he was owed, given the risk he'd taken, if the Poles somehow squirmed out of paying up. He would underwrite it if that happened. And when it happened, he just begged off and didn't, didn't give me any money. I, I was kind of pissed at, at, at him because of that. I, I ended up spending a lot of my own money and uh, getting very close to broke at that time. The threads of trust between the three men were fraying even further. Eventually, after the meeting, Harper and Hugel spoke on the phone about their deal with Sihojin. Hugel asked Harper if Louise enjoyed her trip to Vienna. This was a problem. Even though he had sent her to collect the money at the hotel in Vienna, Harper had purposefully hidden Schuler's identity and role in the scheme from Hugel and Sihojin. Harper believed Hugel's comment was an intimidation tactic. Hugel's way of saying that he knew the real source of Harper's missile documents. And if Hugel had this information, it could be all over for Harper. Hugel and Sihojin could cut out the middleman. Still, Harper was so broke that, back in Silicon Valley, he took Hugel out to lunch and asked him for a $2,500 loan. Hugel gave him $100 in cash. Next time on Spy Valley, a desperate Harper doubles down on spying for the Soviet bloc and gets his big payday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal and produced by Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.